Once there was a time when all the elements of earth, sea, and sky lived on the land together in many, many villages. Many years ago, back in the old country, there lived a holy, sweet couple who loved each other so very much. A long time ago, in a village, somewhere in Tamil Nadu, there lived a monkey. There was once a man, tall and handsome, who met a, a woman, beautiful and elegant, and they fell in love with each other. Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away and will bring you back safely. In the village, the people are listening to the howls outside and tucking their children into bed. The children shiver under old, moth-eaten quilts, and their eyes are wide and no longer sleepy. Adults lean down and give kisses, murmuring, There is nothing to worry. The moon is not yet full, so all the howls are from wolves and not from lycanthropes. The wolves will stay at the edge of the fields and come no closer in a rainy haze. Little hands wrap around apron strings and grasp sleeves. Voices as small as birds roosting in the eaves plead and promise, tell us a story and we won't be scared. Fairy tales are full of humans being turned into animals and animals transforming into humans. So today I have stories that go both ways and I am happy that I get to be the voice you hear first. The story that I have longed to tell you, dear listener, is the Kitsune Wife. Ono, the son of the magistrate of Mino, was of the age he should marry. But he would not marry any of the girls the matchmaker suggested. One was too thin, the other too tall. One girl's nose was too small, and another spoke too much. He had a standard of beauty and intelligence that no girl can match. And some girls had no interest in trying to be his standard of beauty, preferring instead to find husbands who were a little more realistic. His parents pleaded with him, please just pick one, but he would not. Finally, they gave up trying to pressure him, but prayed every day to the kami for a miracle. It was during the moon festival in the eighth month, as the grass turned silver in the moonlight and people gathered to laugh, talk, and eat white rice dumplings and golden sweet potatoes, that Ono saw her. She moved like silk, her nose pointed, her light brown eyes twinkling and sly. She seemed to be alone and spoke to few. But when Ono saw her, he could not stop looking. And when he had the courage to talk to her, though he stammered, he could not stop talking. And those who watched saw the two could not stop smiling at each other. She said her name was Sen, and she was without family, she lived with a widow at the edge of the woods. They talked until the moon set, and he asked if he could see her again. She said yes, and so he did. Soon came the day he introduced her to his parents. They were relieved their son had found someone he actually liked, and that she seemed to be a kind and thoughtful woman. They were married in late autumn. 
he dressed in black, she in white trimmed with red. They walked in small steps with the village behind them and came to the Shinto shrine at the edge of the woods. They made their vows to the kami and sipped the ceremonial sake together and her cheeks glowed. When they stepped outside as man and wife for the first time, from a clear sunny sky came raindrops that left small damp circles on their kimonos. Ono looked at Sen to see if she was upset at the rain on their wedding day, but she smiled and lifted her face to the sky. They went together to his family home, and there they celebrated their wedding and began their new lives. Sen learned to care for the house with his mother, and Ono continued to work with his father, looking after the needs of the village. Ono's mother found Sen to be clever, both cloth and cooking. Sen brought herbs from the forest that made the food more delicious and nourishing. But there was one problem— Ono had an Akita dog with a tail that curled round, and when Sen was near the dog, it would give a low growl, and the hackles would rise. So she kept her distance, asking that Ono care for the dogs without her. He saw her fear, and so he agreed, and peace was kept in the house. In the evening, when the weather permitted, the couple would walk arm in arm through the village, past the rice fields that were yellow and ready for harvest, into the forest with the deep smells of moss and leaves, coming back only after the moon had risen. And as the moon rose night after night, so Sen's belly began to grow. Through the winter it grew and grew until one rainy night in spring she gave a yip of pain and the baby began to make its way into the world. Ono was the father of a boy. He was so proud. The very same night the Akita dog also gave birth to a litter of pups and because the dog had given birth the same day Ono declared the biggest pup would be a gift for his new son. A few weeks later, when the pups opened their eyes, Ono brought the biggest one to meet his son, who was being held by his grandmother. The little puppy licked the child's face and gave squeaks of joy until Sen entered the room. The pup caught her scent and gave a low growl. Sen's eyes grew wide, and she took the baby from his grandmother, and the puppy nipped at her fingers. As the baby and the pup grew together, the pup only became more aggressive. At first, Sen hinted, and then asked, and then pleaded for Ono to get rid of the dog, but he would not. Then one evening, when the son and dog were two years old, as the whole family sat to eat, the toddler did what toddlers might do, dropped a bowl and broke it. Sen, being a tired mother, responded more sharply than she might have intended. She moved more quickly than she meant to as she went to pick up the child, but her tone and movement were cut short as the big dog barked and darted between mother and child, teeth showing fur raised along his back. Sen froze. She looked at her husband. Oh, no. But the dog lunged, and she turned and fled. She fled out the door, chased by the dog, Ono running after the both of them, the dog chasing her out the back of their garden, and she leapt the low stone wall. Her clothes fluttered like butterflies to the ground, and instead of his wife, Ono saw a fox with three tails running across the fields, chased by the dog and disappearing into the woods. 
And as he ran after them, calling his wife and the dog's name over and over, into his mind flooded all the stories he had heard when he was a child. The story of the kitsune, the magical many-tailed fox who could turn into anything. The kitsune whose weddings were marked by rain falling on a sunny day. The kitsune who only feared dogs. He chased them into the dark woods until he could not see either of them. And then the barking of the dog faded away. He called and searched and called until finally the dog came back, panting, but it had not caught anything. Ono took the dog home and saw that his child was looked after by his grandmother. And then he took the lantern and went into the forest, calling for his wife, his voice disappearing into the trees. The next day, too, he searched and called, but nothing came out of the forest to greet him. At dusk they ate in silence, the child asking for his mother, but no one knowing what to say. After shutting the dogs away, Ono sat outside with a lantern and gazed into the darkness all night long, hoping to hear the gentle footsteps of his wife. He did this for three nights, and when she did not return, he waited again until nightfall. He took his wife's kimono and a lantern, and he walked. He walked through the village through the fields with fireflies dancing around him, into the forest with the heavy trees leaning over, to the forest glade where he had been with Sen on their walks. He sat in the cool darkness. He listened, hoping to hear her, but nothing came out of the forest. He lifted his lantern and spoke softly into the darkness. You may be a fox, but you are the mother of my son, and I love you. Come back when you please. You will always be welcome. He carefully lay her kimono on a tree stump and made his way across the firefly fields and to his home. He looked in on his son, who was sleeping deeply next to his grandmother. Then he went to his own sleeping mat and lay down. He lay in the darkness, feeling the cold next to him, the silence of the room. When he was just on the edge of sleep, he thought perhaps he was dreaming, but there was a soft sound, a door being opened and slid shut, light footfalls on the floor, then a sigh and warmth next to him. His arms wrapped around her, she returned his embrace, and he buried his face in her hair, and she smelled like moss and rain on the forest leaves. She was gone in the morning before the dogs were fed, and back each night when they were put away. She came to him beautiful and loving every night for all of their lives. And when Ono took his father's place as magistrate, he was known never to take dogs in his house. And their time and lives together, though not perfect, was content. This episode of the Story Story Podcast is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Huntsmen, Gamekeepers, and Forest Wardens. They are the men that can do so much in the shadows of the stone castles and the cool glens of the forest. They find lost princes, as princes tend to wander. They lose or rehouse princesses. They don't kill women, but they'll tell you they did. They move along quests. Looking for a glass mountain? Just ask them. 
They know the importance of keeping up with the times, so you can send them your requests, questions, and pleas for help now in an online forum. You can do it from your mobile device on foot, horseback, or at the local internet hotspot and tavern. Whether you need your stepdaughter taken away or to find your way out of the forest, International Brotherhood of Huntsmen, Gamekeepers, and Forest Wardens is there to help. In the forest, the creatures are stirring. The rain is dripping from the leaves of the trees and the fox shakes the damp out of its fur. In the dusk, the animals who scurry about in the day are getting ready to bed down in their burrows. While the owls and other nocturnal creatures are starting to shift and stretch, it's time they get up and find something tasty. It's rush hour in the woods, but the animals are hesitant. Badgers trundling along smell the air and pause ever so slightly. There's something. It isn't quite right. But it's not enough to make them stop. Only the hackles rise ever so slightly. One of them doesn't belong. One of them smells strange. Milbury Birch, one of the storytellers who has enchanted your ears before on previous episodes, now brings you another story. This is Bisclave. Long ago in Brittany, there lived a baron who was much loved by his king. Because of that, and because of his family name, he was lord of a fine house and a large tract of land. The baron was a good man, kind and fair to those within his house and throughout his holdings. Some of his servants had been in the employ of his late father, and they had reason to be proud to serve the son. So there was much that might have made his fair wife content, except for one thing. Every week the baron left her and the manor house for three days, and he neither told her where he was going nor where he had been. All in the household but the baron's wife were used to this behavior. My lord, she said to him after the first year of their wedded life, you do neglect your wife. Lady, I would not have it be so. Then stay with me all the days that you are wont to be absent, she pleaded. That I cannot do, he told her, though I would choose it if I could. Then tell me why you leave me so heartlessly. You do me discredit, my love. My heart stays with you, even as I am gone. Then tell me where it is you go, if not to the heart, then to the bed of another lady. There is no lady but you, he said. And that was the truth. But he would say no more. A second year passed, and his wife again pled with him to take her into his confidence. I am your wife, you must trust me with your secrets. Some secrets are best kept locked in one's heart, he told her. That way they can do no harm to anyone. But it does harm me, husband. I am wretched in your absence. I cannot bear it. And she lay on their bed and wept so piteously that at length her tears and pleading, along with her pledges of trustworthiness, moved him. My lady, he said, telling you this 
I place myself in your power. He sat beside her and spoke softly. Although I am of noble blood, a curse runs through my veins. Like my father before me, I am Beast Clavray. His wife sat up, wide-eyed, and pressed her hanky to her mouth to conceal her look of horror. Three days of every week, I must wear the skin of an animal, that I may not harm anyone while I am a beast. I go to the deepest part of the forest until that time is past. There I run on four legs, live on the meat and the fruits of the forest, and make my bed in the grassy weeds. The image of her husband thus changed, so chilled the lady's heart that her love of him changed to hatred in that moment. My lord, she said, in as much a voice as her loathing had left her, do you go about as a wolf wearing a man's mantle? He smiled. No, my lady, it is as the legends say, when I lay aside my manskin, I lay aside my mantle. My clothes are left in a secret place that I might find them when my wolf time is done and return to you. And if you should lose your clothes, she asked as though alarmed at the idea, I would not be able to become a man again until they were returned to me. Then you must tell me where you keep your clothes, she said earnestly, that I might guard them for you, for, for my life would be lost entirely if you did not come back to me. He took her hand in his and kissed it. You need not become a sentry in that deserted place. My things are safe enough in the hollow of a stone outside the ruins of the chapel in the woods. When she heard this, she lowered the hanky from her face and smiled at him. And for the first time in his life, the baron really was cursed. For his lady began to plot how she might escape from his bed without losing all that went with being a baroness. She had long been courted by a knight, both before and after her wedding. The lady had never given him cause for encouragement, but she sent for him now. He arrived at the house the day the baron next left it. She told him the story of the baron's curse. Then she pledged her love to him, in exchange for what she now bade him do. Go to the forest and collect the clothes the baron shed. Bring his garb to me at once, and we shall be married a year hence. The knight returned to her swiftly with her husband's clothes, and together they locked the things in a coffer. Then they exchanged rings, and parted full of promises to one another. At the end of three days, Bis Clavray returned to the hollow stone and saw how quickly he had been betrayed. His heartbreaking howls could be heard in the manor house where the lady slept alone. When the baron did not return from his weekly absence, his wife expressed as much surprise as the servants. 
In the weeks that passed, a search was made of the roads and the byways, but no sign of the baron was found. After six months, the lady began to dress fetchingly in black. Her grief was well attended to by a certain knight. When the news of the baron's disappearance reached the king, his heart was sore. It is rare for a monarch to find a friend among those who serve him. He went himself to the manor house to express his condolences. There he met the lady and her companion. So the king was not surprised at the end of a year to receive a petition of marriage from the two. He granted it, though it grieved him. For solace, the king gathered his men for a hunt in the forests of his realm. The hunting party found wolf tracks of a considerable size not far from the margins of the baron's lands. The dogs ran the beast for most of the day till at last they had it at bay against a cliff. The king joined the hunting party late, having stopped at a ruined chapel to pray for the soul of his friend. The cornered wolf was snapping and snarling at the dogs when it saw the king ride up. At that the beast seemed to shake off its fear and walked toward the monarch with great dignity. The king raised his hand, a signal to collar the dogs, as the wolf bent low as if to bow to him. With the dogs held back, it stood to place its front paws against the horse's flank and laid its head on the king's boot. The king looked down into the animal's eyes and was startled by what looked like an expression of recognition. The king told the rest of the hunting party, This beast is a marvel. It has asked for my protection and shall not be harmed. Then he turned to the wolf and said, Your supplications have gained your freedom and my friendship this day. When he turned the party back toward the castle, the king was not displeased to find the wolf trotting along beside him. Though the king's metalworkers fashioned a large collar and a heavy chain, these were found to be neither necessary nor appropriate. The wolf was clearly the king's champion, sitting by his knee at table or in council, running by his mount in the fields and tourneys, sleeping at his feet on a rug by the great hearth. Its manner was always grave but gentle, and the beast became quite a favorite of everyone. When the king next held court, the wolf was there too, seated at his side. As the knights and vassals gathered, they wondered at the beast's great size and at its tameness. Then a knight entered the room, wearing a heavy cloak that bore the crest of the baron's household. The wolf jumped to its feet and snarled, its hackles rising. The animal threw itself on the man and would have savaged him except for the thickness of the cloak and the alertness of the king in leaping up to pull the beast away. The monarch had the wolf led away to his chambers, signaled his servants to help the knight to his feet, and then retreated to his private rooms. He found the wolf staring into the fire, its flank still shivering with emotion. The king laid a gentle hand upon its back and said, You know me well, 
to show a dislike for this man. He is far the lesser of two husbands a certain lady has enjoyed. But as much as I am tempted to grab him by the throat and give him a shake, you must not do it without my command. Some time later, the king with his wolf and the rest of his company were once more hunting at the edges of the baron's land. When they passed the ruined chapel, the wolf sat down by the path. The king told the others to ride on, but himself dismounted and walked with the beast inside the chapel's fallen walls. The two spent some minutes in shared silence. The animal then led him to a hollow stone outside the chapel. It stood looking at the king beseechingly before turning back to the path to rejoin the hunting party. The baron's false lady heard that the royal party was quartered in the forest. She set about to win better favor with the king, inviting his company to sup at the manor. When they arrived at the house, they were greeted with a show of great courtesy. The aromas of a feast being prepared filled the air. The halls were hung with banners, the floors strewn with clean rushes. Bis Claveret stood beside his monarch, and no sooner had the lady of the house come down the stairs to bow before the king than the beast leapt up and with one great snap tore the very nose from her face. She fell swooning into the arms of a maidservant. The boldest of the men at hand encircled the wolf with their swords drawn, awaiting the king's command. Just then an ancient valet stepped forward and begged permission to soothe the animal. With a nod from the king, he bent to the wolf, calming it with a touch and a word and the beast lapped his hand like a pup. Once the lady was carried from the room for her wounds to be tended, the king spoke to those still assembled, saying, There is more hidden here than is known. It pleases me to question the knight and his unfortunate wife, to see what light they may shed on these shadows. Under the king's questioning, and with a hanky pressed over the bandage on her face, the lady told the tale of Bisclavray, admitting what she'd done. Her knight took the king to a coffer where the baron's clothes still lay. The garb was placed upon the floor before the wolf, but the beast did not move toward it. Perhaps, said the old valet still standing near, the baron is as shy as his father was, let me place the clothes and the wolf in a bedchamber. The king entered that chamber a short time later to find the baron sleeping on a bed. He looked every bit the man he'd always been, though his hair and beard were sore in need of cutting. The king waited by the bedside until his friend awakened from a much-needed sleep. They embraced one another as brothers, and the king was quick to return the house and lands to their rightful owner. He banished the knight and the lady, though the two did live to see another generation. All of the children were born without noses. And whether in wolf form or as a man, the Baron Bisclavray was the king's best champion till the end of their days.
just because a story is strange, do not mistake. It can also be true. Thank you for listening to the Story Story Podcast. Show notes and more information about the storytellers you heard today can be found at storystorypodcast.com forward slash episode 22. Show the love. Find Milbury Birch and me, Rachel Ann Harding, on Facebook. Tell us you heard us on the podcast and now want to hear us tell more stories. In fairy tales, the magic number is three, so I have three things for you to do. One, like and rate the show on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Two, join the mailing list. You will get a link to the podcast delivered to your inbox, plus news and other storytelling-related goodness. Three, consider becoming a supporter. For as little as $4 a month, you help support the podcast and get a story story short, which is just what it sounds like, a short story often recorded by the storyteller just for the patrons. The short for this episode is another story about an animal enchantment, and this time it is by the storyteller who started me on my path. The wonderful Liz Weir from Northern Ireland will tell you the children of Lear. You can find out how to support the podcast and join the mailing list at storystorypodcast.com. And a huge thank you to the ongoing supporters. If you would like to stay connected, you can find me and the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I post a visual for every fairy tale sponsor, something that you can't see via podcast. Let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you'll hear them here soon. Also, for any listeners in or around Utah, I will be there for the Story Crossroads Festival on May 23rd and 24th. If you are a fan of storytelling, you would enjoy this festival. And if you're a fan of the podcast, please come say hello. You can find more about the festival at storycrossroads.com. Next podcast, I have stories for you about contests to be king of the animals and rabbits who can't help but mess with the other creatures of the forest. I hope you'll join me again, and until then, live happily ever after. The wedding lasted for seven days. I know. I was there. I would cross 27 countries, wear out three pairs of boots, battle two giants and the grandmother of all witches, Baba Yaga, before I was reunited with my frog princess. But that's a story for another time. The last thing he said before he died was a curse on anyone who would dare to go sing with the fairies. Just because a story is strange... Do not mistake, it can also be true.